study in the Psalms, and we finish with the second to the last Psalm, Psalm 149, and it is in your bulletin on page 11. We're going to read this scripture together. If you're willing and able, if you would, please stand as we read God's word. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a seat. From 1901 to 1904, the Netherlands had a prime minister by the name of Abraham Kuyper. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Abraham Kuyper. Some of you may have. Well, what was interesting about him, not only was he a Christian, and not only was he a Reformed Presbyterian Christian, he was also a theologian. Could you imagine having a leader of our country actually being a conservative theologian? It'd be strange, right? Well, he was the leader of the Netherlands, and in the many things that he wrote, the one thing that really stands out to me from him is his idea and understanding of Jesus' kingdom. And he said this, if we could put the quote up on the screen, probably what he's most known for, he says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who was sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not one square inch in all of creation over which Christ does not cry, mine. What this means for us as Christians is that I think it's important for us to attune our thinking to what Psalm 149 is saying and to what Abraham Kuyper has taught, and he was taking that from others, from John Calvin, who took it from Augustine, who took it from Jesus himself. There is not one square inch on this earth that Jesus does not own. Now, I realize that the property deeds probably don't reflect that yet, right? The street out here, if you look it up on the Tulsa County tax assessor map, it actually says it's owned by the city of Owasso, right? Your house probably says it's owned by you, or if you're in an apartment, it's owned by your apartment company. Brothers and sisters, one day, if we look at the property records, in the future, it will all stay owned by Jesus. That is the reality that we live in. 
every single inch of this earth is Jesus's. And what we have in this psalm, Psalm 149, is an expression of that. Now, the occasion of the writing of this psalm, it was after the Israelites were in exile and they had come back into Jerusalem and they had had victory. And they were singing this victorious song of praise to their God. And so look at the psalm itself, again on page 11. All of this is said with a certain confidence, is it not? It's said with a certain confidence, and it's not pointed inward. Many of our psalms, I was talking to Pastor Blake earlier this morning, many of the psalms are very inward-focused, right? It's about the inward uh, turmoil and strife and struggle, and we're really thankful that those are there because we all go through that. This one is not turned inward at all. It's actually turned outward entirely. They're praising, they're singing, and then they're going to the nations. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But one thing that I want us to see in this is that this is actually talking about missions. Back when the psalm was written, there was, there was a people of God called the Israelites, and the Israelites were a theocracy. Some of you may know this. This is like Iran in present day. A theocracy in which the religion and the civil government was all wrapped up into one. And in order to be a part of the Israelites, you had to come in, not only religiously, but civilly as well. Well, when Jesus came, what he did, he took down the dividing wall, as Ephesians says, and he took the Jews and then the non-Jews, the Gentiles, and brought them into one body so that there's no dividing wall anymore. And so in order to be a Christian, you just have to call upon the name of Jesus. And so Jesus did this, broke this down, and now we have, Christians have missionaries. Missionaries go to all sorts of different places all across the world. A lot of times we think about missionaries, for instance, being, you know, the people overseas that we send money to but we never see. Well, sometimes missionaries can look like, for instance, what Pastor Blake did and Lauren. They were in Princeton, New Jersey for five years, uh, working with a Christian fellowship there with the students on campus. I did something similar in Pennsylvania. Sometimes missionaries are in our own backyard. And if I were to, let's say, push the New Testament a little bit, I think it would be pretty obvious, and I think we could make a case, that every single Christian, in one way or another, is a missionary. You all have been placed by God in your particular context for very particular reasons. Because Psalm 149 is for all of us. Psalm 149 is for all of us. So what we're going to see as we look at this psalm are three things. We're going to look at the people of missions. We're going to look at the posture of missions. And then we're going to look at the promise of missions. So the people, the posture, and the promise. If you have your Bibles, um, it's not going to be reflected in the bulletin, but if you have your Bibles and you look at the Psalm before 149 and the Psalm one, after 149, really what they are is this. They are praise the Lord. Most of the last Psalms are like this. 
But Psalm 149 introduces a, a different, and I would say a difficult twist. Did y'all notice this when we read it earlier? Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people, to bind their kings with chains, to execute on them the judgment written. I think it's important for us to actually deal with what's being said here, don't you? Because this isn't just praise the Lord. We're saying praise the Lord, and then right after it says, let all of God's people have swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations. If we're going to be serious Christians in an age of skepticism, we have to address things like this. And you know, C.S. Lewis actually said about, the, about this, he said, if our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which we find maybe repellent. For it is for it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and yet we need to know. I believe that the last four verses of this psalm are really puzzling, but if understood, they provide really great purpose and motivation for Christian missions. So the people of missions, who are the people of missions? You know, John Piper, it is in his really wonderful book called Let the Nations Be Glad, um, it would be helpful to read, but let me summarize it for you. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. If every person in all of the earth were worshiping the triune God as they should, there would be no missionaries. Because everyone would know the name of Jesus and call on the name of Jesus. There will be in the new heavens and the new earth, a few occupations that are phased out. One of those is a funeral director. Another one is a missionary. We're not going to need missionaries in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the people of God, the people of missions, missions exist because worship does not. If we look at this psalm, the reason that they're praising God and they're called to do what they're doing is because the nations have not bowed the knee to their God. That's it. God's people are, in a way, this glorious splendor of a thing that is being presented before the nations to say, look at who our God is. Look at who our God is. So our job in this is to keep going in a way to create, let's say, a pandemic of worship, like a disease, but a good disease. So who are the worshiping ones? Who are these people? Look at it in verse 1. The assembly of the godly to Israel. In verse 2, the children of Zion. In verse 4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. So the people of missions, the people who are involved in this enterprise that we see in Psalm 149 is actually everyone. It doesn't say here missionaries, right? And it doesn't say it in any other translation. It doesn't just say pastors or elders. It says the people. It is all of you. This is something that we're all a part of. And so the people of missions is everyone. 
And I want you to think about this for, for just a moment. Maybe for those of you who, who remember coming to faith, how did you actually come to faith? How did you come to faith? For most of us, and I've, I've seen this for years and years, for most of us, we did not come to faith because we responded to a sermon from a pastor. We came to faith because a friend started talking to us about Christianity or invited us to read a book together or something of that nature. Most conversions in the Christian church occur in this way. Not from people like Blake or myself, but from people like you. And it's a beautiful thing to see this because it affirms that all of us have this job of spreading the kingdom of God and his gospel. So the people of missions are you and me. It's all of us. And so if that's the people, look at the posture of missions. We're going to look. There's three critical components of this. The first is in verse 4, and the second and third are in verses 6 through 9. The first posture is humbled. In verse 4, it says, He adorns the humble with salvation. The New American Standard renders it this way. It says, He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. He adorns the humble with salvation. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. You know what's curious about that verse? Is what it does not say. It does not say he will beautify the afflicted ones by removing their affliction. They stay afflicted. He simply adds salvation. It doesn't say he will beautify the afflicted ones by removing their affliction. You know, the affliction isn't removed. Salvation is added there. And I believe that that speaks to us. So often, is this not the case? So often, you and I have to think, do we think that we have to get our act together in order to be used by God? Right? Okay, I haven't read scripture enough this week. I haven't prayed enough this week. I've been very short with my spouse. I've been disinterested in what my children are doing. And then the conclusion that we draw from that is, therefore, there is no way God can use me or will use me or even this, want to use me. But that's actually very contrary to everything else that we see in Scripture. Uh, you know, there's an old saying, I don't know who first came up with it, but God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He doesn't call you because you're good or because you're useful or helpful. God doesn't care in the grand scheme of salvation if you're a good engineer or a bad engineer. I mean, he doesn't want you building bridges that collapse on people. Please. Engineers, take heed. However, Everything that he's calling you to do, the salvation that he's calling you to, you're not ready for it. We're not, we're, we're not worthy to receive that sort of thing. 
And so when you and I get in this mindset that, well, he can't use me or he won't or he doesn't even want to because of where I'm at, it's entirely wrong-headed thinking. Because God uses, we see this in Scripture, people who are very broken for very amazing things. Abraham, for instance, Genesis 12 to, let's say, 22. Twice, he pawned off his own wife as a sister because he was a coward. Moses, uh, he had a speech impediment, and he killed a man. David, with Bathsheba and Uriah, most of you know these stories. Uh, these people are worse than us. In, in some ways, we're worse than them. And yet, look at what God does. He uses broken people for his purposes. The first posture is humbled. And humbled is a state, in a way, that he brings all Christians to. We're humbled because we know we can't do it on our own. And I have no hope in this life save for Jesus. We just read it in the Confession of Faith. That is my only comfort in life and death, that I'm not my own, but I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first posture is humbled, but look at the second posture. Almost in contrast, in verse 6, it says, let the praises of God be in their throats. Why is that important? Let the praises of God be in their throats. What's the difference between speaking from your mouth and speaking from your throat. If you have young kids, you're trying to teach them something called inside voices, right? You want them to speak from their mouths. When you speak from your mouth, this is what it sounds like. When you speak from your throat, you can project, right? What we're being told here is let the high praises of God be in their throats, not their mouths. So often, the high praises of God are found in our mouths and not in our throats. You know, in Hebrew, the word here, right after th throat, is cherub. Hey, kids, can y'all say cherub? Cherub. Okay, wait, if you're not spitting, you're not doing it right. Cherub. If you were a Hebrew at this time, you had to use your throat anyways to say, it seems like half of the letters. It's a very messy language. Everyone gets covered in spit. It's terrible. But what this says to us, let the praises of God be in their throats, Praise is a full-body experience. Really and truly, we are engaging a part of our body to make a lot of noise in order to praise God, is what we're doing. So, the second posture is vocal. And then what is the third posture? Look at it in verse 6 as well. In two-edged swords in their hands. Well, we see why the swords are in their hands. Verses 7 and 9 tells us that. And we don't want to over-spiritualize this. But verses 7 to 9 for us, it does not mean that 
you come to Trinity in the morning, we hand out swords, and you go out and you take vengeance on the kings of the earth. That's not what's happening. The New Testament would apply this in such a way that this is spiritual. What, uh, what Corinthians says that we are taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Jesus. We are trying to demonstrate that every inch of this earth belongs to Jesus. And we don't have to do it with swords. We do it with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So this third posture, they have two-edged swords in their hands. The posture is that they're ready. Where are the swords? They're in their hands. The swords aren't in their sheaths. They're not in their closet. The swords are in their hands. So the posture of God's people is not let the high praise of God be whispered in their mouth and two-edged swords be in their closets. Let the high praise of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. This is a picture of a people ready for missions. They are afflicted, yet adorned with salvation. They are vocal, and they are ready. They are afflicted and vocal and ready. These are the worshipers who were spreading the Lord's praise. Vocal and ready, yes, but afflicted as well. That's what missions really is about. There's many of us, um, I believe, have some idea of what a missionary's life looks like. One of the wonderful things about being a part of RUF, which is the PCA's college ministry for nine years, is that I got to go to a lot of missions conferences and interact with a lot of different missionaries. And most of the missionaries have pretty mundane lives. I think sometimes we think about missions as Indiana Jones. Do y'all ever think that? Like there's a missionary in some backcountry and a boulder's falling over them and they jump out of the way with the Bible in one hand and their hat in the other. No, really missionaries, what they do, they just talk to people about Jesus. Except they do it in a place that's different than Owasso. That's really what they do. But this is being called for us. We know the people, it's us. We know the posture, but look at the promise of it. We are, as 2 Corinthians 10 says, taking every thought captive to be obedient to Christ. We are proclaiming that every square inch of this earth belongs to Jesus. Every person here belongs to Jesus. Every person in Owasso, in Oklahoma, in the world belongs to Jesus. It's just there's two types of people. Jesus is king, and you have those people who will bow the knee to their king, and you have those people who don't. And what we're trying to do is convince those who aren't bowing the knee to bow the knee. Very similar to the reflection from C.S. Lewis on the cover of your bulletin. We are participating in a sabotage of sorts. In a sabotage of sorts. The promise of missions is the way in which Psalm 149 is worded. The victory has already been won. And this, in Psalm 149, is merely a mop-up job. 
you guys have heard, I'm sure, of the stories. I've never actually read it or anything, but the stories of people who were still fighting on islands years after World War II ended. And there were similar stories about when the Vietnam War ended officially, and there were people still fighting 10 years afterwards. I don't know if that's true or not. It wouldn't surprise me if it were true. But what you and I are participating in is something very similar. Our job is not to defeat Satan and sin and death. Our job is to proclaim a message that Satan and sin and death have been defeated already. Ours is really but a mop-up job. The victory has already been won. The promise of missions is this, is that there are those people out there who will bow the knee to our king, and our job is to go find them. Our job is to go find them. Psalm 149 says the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. We are to exult in him. His high praises are to be in our throat. All of this will happen. It will happen. I had students um, in my last year of RUF participate in an evangelism course. It was very fun. We did these, we did these conferences with other schools, and in, in this particular conference, I was teaching a course on how to share your faith. And like many of you have done, um, I made them do the absolute terrifying thing of going to the local mall and share their faith with random strangers. They hated it, as many of you would. I'm not advocating for this, by the way. But what was interesting, when they came back and they shared their stories, um, they were all glad that they did it. It permanently fractured my relationship with several of the students because they just hated it so much, one thing. What was interesting was they said, all of them said, I was nervous, I couldn't keep my head straight, but God provided. God provided. And it really kind of struck me. Like, we didn't have any conversions or anything like that. They're not Billy Graham. I'm not Billy Graham. What was interesting is that in every single case, God provided. And I think you and I might have a tendency in our spheres to not believe that he will actually provide. For instance, you want to share the gospel with a neighbor. You're afraid about what it might do to your relationship with the neighbor. If you look at Psalm 149, the victory has already taken place. God will provide for his people. He'll provide you swords. He'll provi provide you praises in the throat. Or someone at work that you've been wanting to talk to. I mean, he will provide. And when we sang that in two different songs earlier, do we actually believe that in going forward? One of the great things about Psalm 149, and that makes it absolutely possible, look at verses 7, 8, and 9 with me. The way that the psalm wraps up, The high praises of God are in our throats. Two-edged swords are in our hands. 
to execute vengeance on the nations. The reason that is given to us to speak the word of God powerfully to let people know that they are under condemnation apart from Jesus is because Jesus himself was executed. Verse 8, to bind their kings with chains. We're not physically doing this. But Jesus himself was bound to the cross. Not with chains, but with nails. And on verse 9, judgment that should have been for us was put on him. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is here in Psalm 149. It is telling us that you and I not only cannot do it on our own, you and I are not prepared for missions on our own. The great missionary himself came from heaven in order to be among us, to be like us, to win us to his side. And the only way that he could do that was by dying in our place, dying the death we should have died, living the life that we should have lived. And now he calls us to participate in his kingdom expansion, to see people converted, to see institutions, companies, and governments, and households bowing the knee to Jesus and doing things in a way that honors him. So that's what we have for this morning. We have the people of missions. We have the posture of missions. And we have the promise of missions. It cannot fail because Jesus is behind it. Every square inch is his. We can rest in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we belong to Jesus. Thank you that in him is safety and security. We thank you that you give us opportunities in our lives to be people of missions. Even as something as simple as speaking to our neighbors, our families. Father, give us courage. Help us to believe even more deeply that that you are with us and your kingdom expansion cannot fail. We long to see the day when all knees bow to Jesus. In the meantime, we ask that you would take care of us and inspire us and help us bow our knee. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.